Welcome to a very special edition of Wrestling Memories Online. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my co-host, noted pro wrestling historian George Shire. And George, today we come uh, with a special guest, but we also come with a somber tone uh, to this uh, very special edition of Wrestling Memories. Oh man, we we lost uh, the the great one of all great ones as far as uh, not just pro wrestling but Minnesota pro wrestling. And boy, these don't get any easier, do they, George? And, and by the way, welcome to the program. As always, uh, thank you so much, Glenn. And yes, you're right. This is going to be a more somber. Uh, it's always sad when we have to talk about the passings of one of our heroes, uh, one of our legends. And you and I, we have done this a number of times with many wrestlers that have left us over the last four years that we've been doing this show. And this time around, uh, and I'm going to introduce a special guest that we have with us in just a moment. But this time around, Glenn, um, it's difficult for a, at least for me, in a much different way. And I I was at the funeral service uh, yesterday, and I was at the visitation the night before. And I will tell you, Mr. Fern Ganya, this was uh, different for me only in the sense that it made me realize that it was Vern Ganya, above and all, everybody else in the business, regardless of who my favorites have been. Vern Ganya is the reason that all of those favorites, all of those wrestlers that were around the upper Midwest on so many cards that I saw over the last 55 years that I have been attending wrestling or attended wrestling regularly. We are talking about the passing of Vern Gagne. And with that, I want to bring on our guest because we're going to share some stories. We're going to share, and I want to talk about the funeral. But let's bring in one of the gentlemen that worked for the AWA. He worked firsthand with Vern Gagne and the AWA and All-Star Wrestling, a voice that's familiar to all. We call him Killer Ken, but he's Ken Resnick. Ken, come on in, my friend. Well, George and and Glenn, it's certainly a a somber reason we're we're talking, but uh, as always, it's an unbelievable pleasure to to be able to visit uh, with both uh, you and Glenn and George, uh, I'm very honored to, to be able to call you a, a good friend for decades. Uh, but the, the reason we're here is certainly unfortunate. Yes. Well, and, and right back to you, Ken, on the, the friendship over the decades. You know, and that's something that I think maybe we can touch on just very briefly. What I've learned over my, uh, boy, I'll tell you what, it's about six decades now of, of being a wrestling fan and, and, as you said later, an historian and involved around the business. The one thing that we have that just seems to never go away in wrestling is we have so many friends. When, when you meet somebody in wrestling, it's like we're friends forever. And that has been very special, too, because I've, I've just had the opportunity to, wow, have so many, so many good friends through the decades. And, you know, Ken, I, I want to get your reflections, too, because I know you worked in, in a capacity of being with Vern, working for the company, working on television and the demands and the stresses that go with that. And, and before I do that, I, I just want to say that, you know, over the decades, we've all heard stories that, uh, you know, certain wrestlers 
had a had a beef with Vern, or they didn't like this, or they didn't wish they wish that he'd done that, or why didn't he do this? And I just want to say to everyone listening that that is so familiar a phrase that is in every company around the world, I think, where the employees often have issues with management, with the bosses, with the decisions. They may not agree with them all the time. They may not see why they're made or what what the cause of you know what the cause and effect will be. But when a person runs a company, bottom line, they're there to make money and they're there to make the decisions, sometimes spur of the moment decisions at a moment that has to be made. And maybe in hindsight they can recognize it wasn't the best decision. But that's what running a business is all about. And they're always going to be unpopular decisions in any company. And I'll tell you what, pro wrestling was no different, whether it be the AWA, the NWA, the WWWF, Portland, Tampa, any territory you want to go to, that it was the same. It was about running a business, making money, making the best decisions possible at the moment in time they are made. And that's what it was all about. And so that being said, I only say this because working for Vern could be different than seeing Vern as a fan and seeing Vern as a as a, a the attraction that he was. And what an attraction he was. Uh your you're you're exactly right, and there there's no question that uh, a lot of people that that worked uh, you know for Vern in the AWA had significant issues with Vern, but uh, myself included. But no one can deny the, his greatness in the right. ring and what he did for the business of professional wrestling over the years and you know i've been able to to listen in to to a lot of the tribute um and one thing that you know i have you know has been in my mind that we were so incredibly lucky not as an employee of the awa but as a wrestling fan living in the twin cities that will never ever ever be duplicated and that not only was the the awa based here, and I, I think it's fair to say that uh, St. Paul and Minneapolis was kind of the, the focus of the AWA. Uh, you know, the, the great cards were, were many times at the St. Paul Civic Center, but the unique thing is everyone with the AWA, with very few exceptions, lived here, were accessible. I mean, wrestling fans would see them at the grocery store see them going to a movie, and really got a chance to get to know them up close, where in the other territories, and certainly today, whether it's WWF, uh, TNA, even Ring of Honor, because it, it's so wide an expanse, wrestlers live all over the country. They're not right. centered in what really was a relatively small community back then. Yeah, you bring out a really good point with that, and and you know some of those guys that we could point out the the stars that lived you know within the confines even just of Minneapolis St. Paul the Twin Cities you know sure. guys like Larry Hennig and Vern Gagne himself and Nick Bockwinkel and uh Baron Von Raschke and Eddie Sharkey and Doug Bobby Gilbert Eden when he was here, here. And I mean the list is the endless chic, they they, uh, they lived here Jack Lanza yep, yeah yep and and are still here and 
you know, even on the East Coast today, I mean, fans of WWE, you know, they might be there once every couple months, but the talent comes in generally day of, does the show, does television, is gone the next morning. Right. And, you know, the stars of the AWA were, were so often homebred, but lived here, were part of the community. I mean, right. uh, how many times do, do I run into people that say, oh, they still remember the time uh, they bumped into Baron Von Raschke at the grocery store in Prior Lake? And, and mm-hmm. you know, everybody was around, and, you know, e- even back then, you know, you uh, as a fan and growing into an historian, you had access to that talent quite often because we all lived here. And I, yeah, I, that's something very special. that will never um, happen again because it's changed so much. Right. Well, and you know, when we're, when we're speaking of the passing of Vern Gagne, and for those listeners that may tune this in and, and not be really up to date on everything, uh, Vern did pass away on uh, a week. Let's see, we're doing this show on uh, May 6th. The funeral was yesterday, May 5th. And Vern died a week ago before Monday. that. A week ago, I think it was, uh, I started 20th. hearing about it late Monday, uh, a week 27th. ago Monday. 27th. Yes. Yeah, and we got the word, and I will tell you this, uh, what you want to talk about the popularity of Vern Gagne. This is a name, you know, wrestling, if you look back at legends, you look at back at that golden era, you know, let's say pre-1990 or 1985, when for three or four decades before that, wrestling was presented so much differently than it is today. You know, number one being that it was presented as a real sport, and that it and and the wrestlers lived that code, and sure. it it was um, uh, and nobody lived it more than Vern. Oh, of course. And Vern <laughs> Vern had a creed, you know, that if you you went out and and you said that wrestling wasn't real or you didn't protect the business or you didn't do this, I mean, you didn't work because this was real, and Absolutely. and fans believed it. They they did. They they believed. They wanted to believe. And but it was that way all over the country at that time. We should point that out. But, but it just I, was I, such I think, a different. You know, having having had the the opportunity to to travel to some other cities and get involved with some cross promotions, it was that way. But nowhere was it more so than in the AWA. Exactly right. Yeah, and we were just so fortunate to have Vern Gagne. You know, when you talk about the territory itself. Um, I'm old enough to remember when in the mid-50s and into the late 50s when Vern Gagne was such a big name in wrestling. This was pre-AWA. And when Vern was in Minneapolis, his hometown, it was absolutely news. And the one thing we should always point out is that Vern, you say his name, Vern Gagne, and in wrestling, in the wrestling business, the name goes synonymous with pro wrestling, with amateur wrestling. And then Vern is in a very, very elite group of pro wrestlers that are in a group of guys like Danny Hodge and Luthez and Carl Gotch. And it's just a small group of guys that were absolutely the real deal. Well, That's I mean, how big he was. You're right, George, and, and a lot of 
pro wrestling fans don't realize that Vern was a two-time NCAA champion right. at the University of Minnesota. I mean, nobody had the the background and techniques of wrestling like Vern did, and it was a truly unique situation as well. I mean, we we all talk about you know, WWF, WWE now, but here was Vern, not only the the promoter and, you know, basically running the AWA and the champion many, many times, deservedly so, but also he himself trained so many of the game's great stars. I mean, he was really, he had the trifecta going, which, again, will will never, ever be duplicated. I mean, he made his impact really on three totally different areas of pro wrestling. You know, one of the things when you talk about the real faction of it and the fact that Vern had such a great amateur background, if you go back to the late 40s and very early 50s, no, right after World record. War II, it ended my, in yeah. 1946, I want to wrestling be on record, was starved for, for stars. Well, I, I want to go on record, that was before my time. Well, it, it was before mine too. I'm not that old, <laughs> but but what I'm what I'm alluding to though is after World War II, most of the '40s rest the the '40s decade wrestlers and the '30s wrestlers and the '20s wrestlers they were old. They had retired. They had been to the war. Yep. They had left wrestling, yep. or they or they'd passed on. Yep. And wrestling in the late '40s with guys like Gorgeous George and Nature Boy Buddy Rogers and in the late 40s, Killer Kowalski. And then along, of course, you had, you had Luthez, who was, he, he epitomized what real wrestling was supposed to be like. And then came Vern Gagne, amateur wrestler, came into the pro ranks. He, he always stressed on his wrestling cards, on his wrestling circuit, that you were a wrestler first and an entertainer second. Absolutely. And, and you know, look, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I would say one of the other unique things that is just 180 degrees different from today, if you think about it, Vern achieved all the accolades with really no gimmick. I mean, his gimmick, he would come to the ring with a white towel around his neck. That was it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so many of the other great, stars, and, and this is in no way a, a negative about them, but, you know, kind of had a, additional props, if you will, and that's a, probably a bad term, but uh, additional things that went into creating their character. But Vern came to the ring in his trunks with a, just a white towel around his neck. That was it. Well, and, and you know, when you talk about, you use the word props or gimmicks or whatever, you know, we don't want to deny that wrestling, pro wrestling, uh, at least since uh, the early 50s, has not had its share of characters. I mean, I know the WWE has, has taken that to a new level, but in the 40s or the late 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and even the early 80s, wrestling always had its share of characters, guys that had a gimmick of some sort that helped to get them over with the crowd, whether they were a babyface or a heel. But in, in, the, in the case of Vern Gagne, you're right. He'd come to ring with just that white towel around his neck, and they'd introduce him, 
And Vern, his gimmick was wrestling. Yep. He, he used he used hold and counter hold and the drop kicks. And I wish, I really do wish, you know, I, I was privileged being a child, being a kid growing up in the 50s and in the early 60s, to have had the chance to see Ganya. And I will tell you, there there was nobody faster in the ring. This guy, you got dizzy watching him. And yes, in the 70s and the 80s, of course, as time takes its toll on everyone, he slowed down, he got older, he, he you know, he, he was able to do less. But that's life, man. But if you sure. saw Vern Gagne from, from the late, the, let's say the mid-50s to 1970, this man was, wow. Wow. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I didn't have that uh, experience because we I We should didn't, point out that Ken, Ken is only 29, so that's yeah, why. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Just had my 29th birthday. The, the, the many, 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 many anniversaries of my 29th. But, you know, I, I didn't get involved uh, with the AWA until the 80s. So, you know, I, I absolutely can visualize what you say. Uh, but, you know, even when I was in the AWA in the 80s, Vern was pretty quick and pretty cagey in the ring. One of the things that I always get a kick out of when you when we talk with, you know, the casual fans, fans that remember going to certain cards or they they went for a short time and then they quit going, but they they remember wrestlers. And one of the the main criticisms that you would hear uh, from fans from time to time is, well, Vern was champion too long, or Vern made him champ made himself champion because he owned the company, and things like that. And and I just want to clarify something with that type of a criticism. Again, going back to using wrestling as a business, if you go into banks, you go into corporations, whatever it may be, whatever type of business it is, generally speaking, it's the the owners of the company that are in the positions of power of of uh, you know the titles given to them in the company, vice president, president, CEO, whatever it might be. Those are given to the people that are running the company because they are the ones running the company. And Vern, yes, he did put the title on himself. Uh, We counted 10 times. But the the thing that's interesting is in the wrestling business, and this may be something that a lot of uh, fans don't recognize, is that, number one, Vern had the credentials to be a champion. He was a wrestler, absolutely a wrestler. He was the real deal. And in my opinion, that's, if that's the name on the marquee, the best wrestler should hold the title. Number two, Vern was the owner, and he knew what he wanted, and he knew what direction he wanted his company to go in. And he trusted, he could always trust Vern Gagne. As many wrestlers that would have a beef with management, management could have a beef with wrestlers who weren't always reliable who their word wasn't always good, who always wanted more than they were getting or, or felt they were getting less. And, you know, the dissension, this is all normal business policy in any company you're in. And that was in the wrestling business as well. So Vern knew he could trust himself. Oh, sure. And, and I mean, the reality is and, and until um, Vince McMahon wanted and, and was able to take WWF national, uh, you're right. You you can argue maybe he stayed a little too long or had the title maybe a few too many times. But the bottom line is, until the competition really came in, the AWA was, was 
certainly one of, if not the most successful promotion throughout the, the Midwest. And even, you know, think, they always say, well, it was in the Midwest. But, you know, a lot of people forget it was just as big in Salt Lake City and in Denver, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Winnipeg. I mean, uh, it was a, a pretty good size of the country that was AWA territory. Um, and I think uh, also Vern and, and Greg kind of had the attitude, well, it's not broke, so we don't really need to fix it. Right. Um, for for a lot of years, and you know, you can say what you want, but you really can't argue with success. Um, well, and and the thing that uh, I think we'd have to say with that, it's not broke. It's you know, don't worry about fixing it type scenario. Um, the the way wrestling changed in the mid '80s with uh, the WWF at the time, their expansion and their intent to expand. Um, that was a that was a new train coming down the track that was. Yep really not seen by a lot of the old guard, you, you know, not making an excuse, but Vern Gagne by that time was 60s, in his 60s, as were all of the old school promoters around the country. If you looked at all of the heads of the companies, they were all in their late 50s, into their 60s, some of them closer to 70. And yes, maybe they were all a little bit not able to see the forest for the trees, but it's inevitable things changed, wrestling changed, wrestling changed when Vern Gagne came into the business because of the uh, invention of television. You know, before that, promoters, the only way they had a way to get the fans to know about their card was either A, over a radio announcement or a flyer on a telephone pole or in the window of a, of a department store. They didn't You're have right. television. And, and television you know, changed it. And, and, and Vern Gagne was one of those first stars, along with Fez and Gorgeous George and Buddy Rogers that we pointed out to earlier. So, yeah, that, that helped him, and that and was George, something that he was part of. And, George, to, to your point earlier that you know I've often thought about, and, and I think a lot of times the casual fan may not, even if you look at today's pro sports, that there is, there is no substitution for the experience, and certainly Vern, unlike so many in wrestling, had the, the technical background. I mean, you look in pro hockey, Yarmie Yager is, is, you know, well into his 40s and still one of the game's biggest stars and was certainly a, a playoff scoring threat. You know, so, yep, age has slowed him down, but when you have that kind of experience and that kind of technical background in the game, you can prolong your stay at a very high rate. In, in basketball, you look at Tim Duncan. I mean, he's certainly older than most, but there's no argument with his experience and his technical background. He's still one of the greats. And no one in wrestling had more technical background than Vern. And a lot of times, you know, experience will triumph youth. That's very true. And, you know, it, it comes down to name value and drawing drawing power and uh i don't know ken if you were at Vern Gagne's retirement match the first one <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I was gonna but say, the, the real one, one of, which was which on may 10th of, of 1981 <laughs> yeah th- that one there the, the may 10th of 1981 Vern had he was champion for the previous year and he was going to retire after that match it was it was stated on the air that win or lose to nick bockwinkle he was retiring, and he made it. He made it public that his goal was to retire as world champion. That 
you know, they made the story that it had never happened before and that sort of thing. This is what wrestling is all about. It's about creating a story. It's about creating uh, the, the whole angle to make it all work. And that was the storyline. But the reason I asked you, if I don't recall if you were there or not that night, no, but the Civic Center was full. I wasn't even, uh, uh, hadn't joined the AWA yet. And to tell you the truth, I, I didn't know it was back in 81. He had his first retirement match. So he had a lot of those. <laughs> well, he, he had, you, you know, he had the couple where storylines came out later on where there was one where Mad Dog Vashon, after several weeks of demanding that Vern come out of retirement to be his partner, because as the dog said, Vern owed him a favor. And if, if fans who followed wrestling for a while at that point would remember, in 1978, Vern Gagne was teamed with Billy Robinson, and they had had some, they had had some uh, matches with Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. And in one of the matches, uh, the dirty tactics, the, the, you know, the, the bad tactics that Stevens and Patterson were using, they oh, injured say, Billy. Say it isn't so. <laughs> they injured Billy. And Vern came out and said that, you know, with guys like Stevens and Patterson, if I'm going to fight fire with fire, I got to get somebody that fights like they do. And he surprised everybody when he chose Mad Dog Vashon. This was genius promoting. I mean, this is the way wrestling was run for decades all over the country, where sure. you take mortal enemies and you give them a common cause and you put them together against mutual enemies. That's what wrestling has been founded on for years. So here's Vern. Here's the dog who, for the 60s and all of the 70s, have fought Donnie Brooks in every territory, over the championship, etc. And the big question, of course, the storyline with the fans is, my God, can they trust each other? Can, can Vern trust the dog? You know, they're going to go against Stevens and Patterson. Well, they had those matches, and that's where, the, that's where that match came from, after Vern had officially retired from wrestling, the dog was having trouble with the Sheiks, which was uh, Adnan Casey and Jerry Blackwell at the time. Sure. And he wanted to have a partner, and he kept trying to lure Vern out of retirement. Yes, it was, was a, it was an angle, but that's I, what I was there dur during that part. You know, I, I think we can sum up this, George. Like, Vern, like any great entertainer, he just had a few encores. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, here's, here's the thing. In those chic matches with the dog and Ganya coming out of retirement, the Civic Center and the other cities that they worked this angle in, this story in, they were full. Sure. It worked. Absolutely. And that's what it was about. And, of course, working in a tag match, Vern obviously didn't have to, you know, nor did the dog. You, you were able to you know, not work as hard as you would if you were by yourself in a singles match. So it worked. Sure. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm, George, I'm starting to feel a little guilty. Glenn, you still with us? Glenn, wake oh, up! I am absolutely uh, there with you. Uh, it just has George, been we gotta, we've got to let Glenn get, get, get a word in. <laughs> well, Glenn's only 13. <laughs> well, see, anything we talk about, Glenn doesn't. He's like, he has no clue. No, Glenn, oh, he sits good. under the ring until we tag him in, Ken. Okay. <laughs> I, I just wait for, I wait for that hot tag, and then I jump in. I, I absorb all the knowledge, and it's, it's been so great. And, Ken, I just have to ask you uh, about how you got into the, you know, you get into the pro wrestling, but 
how, how you found your way to wrestling. What was your first impression of like meeting Vern Gagne? You know, you you you've heard about his legend. You've you know, there's been the television, the constant years of him being a top dog. He him being so involved with uh, you know amateur wrestling in the community. What was it like for you? to hook up with the AWA and your first impression of Vern. I mean, this guy was larger than life. He was kind of the, like the Sinatra of the pro wrestling business. Uh, absolutely. It, I mean, it was funny. I had never had a thought of being involved in pro wrestling. Um, George probably remembers this. Glenn, I, I don't know if you lived in the Twin Cities. I know you're north now. Uh, there used to be the old Duff Celebrity Golf and Tennis Tournament that Joe Duffy ran. And, I mean, it was, it was a huge, huge tournament. They really got the, the A-list of, of local and, and national celebrities. And I was doing the 6 and 10 o'clock news as a sports director at the NBC station in Rochester. And the people at the golf tournament actually was uh, the late Jim Lupiant, who, you know, is so closely associated with the Twin Cities and uh, automobile dealerships. Jim was chairing uh, one of the committees, which was called Celebrity Corner, where they decided, like in anything, it was hard for, and they would get 30, 40, 50,000 fans mm-hmm. to have access to, to the celebrities. So they decided they were going to have a Celebrity Corner stage and interview all the celebrities and give fans a chance to, to ask questions, and they tapped me to host that. And one of the celebrity guests who came up was, was Vern Gagne, and that was the, the first time I had ever met him. And, you know, Vern had his personality, he had a certain magnetism about him. So, you know, I was pretty honored, and I thought, hey, you know, I have, yeah, I've talked to the cast from MASH, and we've had the cast from Hill Street Blues, and I'm getting a chance to talk to Vern Gagne. So, you know, I interviewed him, and growing up here, he had a, a pretty decent knowledge of, of what was going on in the AWA. That was it. Uh, after at the banquet that night, Vern came up to me. We talked again and thanked me, and he asked me my background. And, you know, I told him where I worked, and that was it. And about uh, two weeks later, he called me at the television station, wanted to know when I was going to be back in Minneapolis, and I told him I spent every weekend, and he wanted to have lunch. Uh, and I'll never forget the gal on the switchboard at the TV station came running up to me. She says, you're not going to believe this. There's a guy that says he's Vern Gagne on the phone wants to talk to you. Uh, so I went up and, and had lunch with Vern, and that's when he offered me the job of coming up and doing the, the TV for the AWA. Mm-hmm. So what was it like? I mean, to go from you meeting Vern, knowing the celebrity, getting in and, and, and getting to work, what was those, those first few days uh, like, those first few moments? And what was the first big event that you covered? And, 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 and tell us a little bit about those early days and, and you know, transitioning from doing uh, sports, uh, you know, at a Rochester affiliate to doing uh, interview day <laughs> and, other, and other live events. Uh, the, the first few interview days... Um, Let's say we're, we're somewhat challenging because um, because I was new. They didn't really, you know, Vern or Greg didn't really know me and hadn't developed, uh, you know, any sort of, of, of cred with them. Um, for the early days, they tried to kayfabe me. Um, so that, that made it, it difficult. Um, but, you know, I got to, to know everybody, and, and most of the guys were, were fine and, and great to interview. But I have to tell you that 
the first interview I remember doing where I was absolutely in, intimidated uh, was not with Vern or Greg or, or, or Nick or Mad Dog or the Crusher. It was absolutely with Animal Hawk and Paul Ellering. I mean, when you don't really know them and they come on, you've got, you know, Animal on one side, Hawk on the other, and Ellering behind you. Uh, I was pretty nervous doing that one. And that, that, you know, over the years I got to be, you know, good friends with, with Joe and, and Mike, you know, may he rest in peace. Uh, but that's the one I remember that I, was the most intimidating and, and I was the most nervous doing. When did you feel like you were really part of of the family? As far as because you mentioned uh, about getting kayfabed uh, for uh, your your first few moments with the company, when was that moment that when they find you finally felt like, hey, I'm in now this business? I mean, there'll be some ribbing here and there because that's what wrestlers seem to do. Oh yeah, you know. But when, I've, been but when brunt, did, I've been the brunt of a couple. Yeah, we can um, we can talk about ribs, but let's talk about when you got acclimated and you felt like you know the the kayfabe thing kind of wore itself out and you were acclimated into the group. Well, you know, it, it's a, a, an interesting dynamic. I, I, I can't, Glenn, point to, to one moment, but it, it, the kayfabe kind of ended, in being totally honest, um, kind of in, in spite of, of Vern and Greg, just when I was around the guys, around them all interview days, after a few weeks, um, they, it's like they kind of said to themselves, hey, he's putting us over, he's helping us, uh, you know, let's get on. And it, it was really the other guys that, that kind of ended the, 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 the kayfabe, uh, you know, smartened me up. Um, so there wasn't any seminal moment. It was just, um, you know, they, the, the baby faces and the heels when I was around suddenly were very comfortable you know, hanging out together, and, and we would go to lunch, and it was kind of a, 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 a gradual thing. There was, a, you know, never any, you know, Vern calling me into the office and, you know, making me take a blood oath. It, it just kind of happened where, um, and, uh, you know, I think it was kind of led by, by Blackjack Lanza, who, you know, I, I worked in the office with and who was such a, a great mentor for me, you know, as was Nick and, and Bobby. Um, I think they kind of got together and said, you know, he's a good guy and, you know, enough is enough. And what, uh, because I remember, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I was certainly still learning and suddenly, you know, Bobby would come up and give me tips and Nick would come up. Um, uh, and it just, it suddenly I was just kind of, uh, accepted. And then, gradually, uh, you know, when it started out, if Vern wanted to, to talk to one of the heels, they'd like, you know, walk out or go behind the screen. Um, and just all of a sudden, he kind of stopped doing that as well. So it, it just, uh, you know, after a few weeks, I was just kind of one of the guys. Yeah, but the, uh, which made things a lot easier. Mm-hmm. But but you know, but the ribbing didn't really uh, stop there. You, me- you mentioned uh, something a little bit about the ribbing. Uh, you know, boys will be boys, I guess. But uh, what, what what would you say uh, has been were some of the things that, that they got you on? Just for a couple examples, you don't have to like say the biggest rib or whatever. But what were the, well, some of those I, things? I, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, there's there's a couple I really can't share uh, <laughs> over sure. the air. Uh, 
but I will tell you the best one of all time. Um, I was in WWF by then. We were in Pittsburgh, and I forget who the agent was. In other words, uh, who from the company would, would kind of lay out, you know, laid out all all the TV. Um, and either his plane was delayed or there was something. And normally they were always there, but, you know, they would always send me the rundown. And, you know, with WWF, sometimes we would do, you know, 75 to 100 interviews throughout the day. And so I had gotten in and we had to go right, you know, I checked into the hotel and had to go grab lunch and go right to the arena. And I didn't bring my copy of the list with me okay. <laughs> because normally I didn't need it. And as it turned out, I had to get it. So I was trying to figure out who was still back at the hotel, who was, you know, coming down later. And the only one I knew for sure was still at the hotel was Bobby Heenan. So I had to call Bobby and ask him to grab my list and bring it down. And then I had to call the front desk at the hotel to tell them to give Bobby Heenan a key to my room. Now, that alone should scare the hell out of you. Giving Heenan a key to your room when he knows you're not there. <laughs> Bobby that, that... went in, you know, got the list, came down, and I kept saying to him, "What'd you do to my room?" What'd you? And he swore up and down, "I didn't do anything. Come on, this was different. You know, I wouldn't do that to you." <clears throat> yeah, he pulled a bunch of minor. He said, "I didn't do anything." Well, he swore to that. <clears throat> so at the end of the night, after the house show, we get back to the hotel. You know, probably eleven fifteen, eleven thirty. And everybody's going to go down to the bar. So I go to my room, and I literally, I put the key in, and I mean, I'm opening the door inch by inch. He swore up and down he didn't do anything, but I didn't trust him anywhere near as far as I could have thrown him. I get the door open, I look up above, there's nothing. I tiptoe in the bathroom, you know, and Jake the snake was with us, and I was half expecting somehow he needed to put the snake in there. I just, sure. I did I checked all the drawers, checked my bag, checked everything, and I couldn't find a thing. So I go down to the bar, and Bobby's there. I said, Bobby, thank you. You're a man of your word. I'm going to buy you a drink. And we stood and visited, and we're talking. So I finally go back to my room because we've got an early flight. Go back, you know, get undressed, you know, brush my teeth, you know, pull the bedspread back. I, I mean, I looked under the bed. I looked everywhere I could think of. And I get climb in the bed. And at the top of my lungs, I scream, Heenan! And I could hear him laughing outside my door. What he had done, he had gone to the restaurant and got like two or three salt shakers and just unscrewed the top. And, you know, with the white sheet, completely covered the inside of my sheets with salt. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I mean everywhere, in the sheets, on top of the So all I could do was just pull the bedspread over and sleep on top of the bedspread. <laughs> So he was, that's probably the best one, all things considered, because he absolutely had me believing that he really didn't do anything. Well, and he'd actually got more out of you because he got a drink from you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I'm sure throughout his career he probably didn't, there were very few drinks he probably enjoyed more than that one. because <laughs> He knew what was still to come. <laughs> We're talking with Ken Resnick uh, on this very special edition of Wrestling Memories Online. Talking with Ken Resnick along with myself, Glenn Broggett, and George Shire. Remembering the late, great Vern Gagne. And uh, George, 
Well, I was looking uh, through some bio information about Vern. And I, you know what? We talk about him uh, for his you know pro wrestling prowess, his amateur wrestling talent. But you know what? This guy served in the armed forces. He was a pro football player. He was a re- you know he was a promoter. He was a trainer. If you want to look up the term "man's man," you damn sure would see a picture of Vern Gagne. This guy, he was he had his toe in everything. It seemed like just such an an athletic and a great mind for the business. What a, what a mind. Well, he was he was a very intensive uh, individual. He he truly enjoyed competition. He was a great tennis player as well, and anything competitive, Vern was really into it. He wanted to win, which reminds me of a story that uh, was told yesterday at Vern's uh, service, uh, his memorial service. Greg Ganya was talking about uh, Vern being such a great competitor as a father that he was always out fishing, he was hunting, you know, he he, he enjoyed wrestling, he enjoyed football and baseball and and he brought up the fact that though all the times that Vern could win or would try to win and he said there was only one person who was able to beat him at gin and that he said was my mom. Uh, Mary Ganya, and he said Vern would even resort to cheating to try to win, and he couldn't win. And he says, "Mom always got him." And he said, "You know, then Vern's mom or Greg's mom had passed away uh, in 2002, so she'd been gone a good number of years." But um, you know, that brings up I got to tell you the. Let's just touch on a moment since we're remembering Vern, and we talk about a very charismatic character. Vern was, as we've touched on here, a noted celebrity in the, in the uh, at least in the Twin City market, but all over the country. When Vern was in town, it was big news. And in in our local area, uh, if you if you go back to the '60s and you had baseball heroes like Harmon Killebrew and Tony Oliva, and you had the football stars, you know Fran Tarkenton and Bud Grant, and and in wrestling you had Vern Gagne, and he was with all of these people. He, you know, he was in the same breath. When we were at the service the other night, they, the family had put together some very nice uh, photo tributes. And you know what? There were photos of Vern Gagne with, we know he was close to Hubert Humphrey at various times and our former vice president, but there were pictures of Vern Gagne with Gerald Ford, our former president. And many, many boxing greats, Jack Dempsey, and 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 he he had pictures with uh, politicians. You know, the man really was in that circle where when you had, and as Ken, you know, touched a moment ago about the celebrity tournament, you brought Vern Gagne out, and Greg told a story that was. I thought rather interesting coming from a son's viewpoint of his father. Greg said that back when he was just a young kid himself, he idolized Mickey Mantle of the New York Yankees. And Greg went on to list all of the Yankees that were playing on the team at the time. And Greg said one time his dad took him to, right after the Twins, or the the Washington Senators had come to Minnesota and became our Minnesota Twins, uh, Greg says, my dad told me we're going to go see the Twins game, and they were playing the Yankees. And Greg said, I was ecstatic because I was going to get to see Mickey Mantle. 
And he said, I got a chance. He said, I was overwhelmed when I had a chance to go into the locker room with my dad and all of the baseball players on the Yankee team. He said, including Mickey Mantle came up and said, Vern, they were surrounding Vern. And he says, they wanted Vern to sign the baseballs for him. And they wanted Vern to sign a picture. And, and he, and Greg said, Oh my God, here I am idolizing Mickey Mantle and he's idolizing my dad. And he said, that's when I realized, you know, the, the magnetism that my dad had. And I thought that was an interesting story coming from Vern or from Greg at that time, who, you know, in 19, the early 60s, you know, Greg would have been, um, you know, just a, uh, a teenager. And so you, you really, those are precious moments. And Vern was just, a, I remember one time, I'll give you a personal recollection. This is something fans today would never, ever see. But back in the old days, you used to be able to actually go up to the ring as a fan and get autographs from the, the, the wrestlers before they were introduced for their match. And the fans would swarm around the corner of the ring and try to hand a program or a, a piece of paper or whatever it was up to the wrestlers, and the wrestlers would take it and sign their name on it. Well, I had gotten, and I was, I would have been uh, 12 years old at the time, and it was at the St. Paul Auditorium. And they were rushing, it was getting close to get the match underway, and they were rushing the fans away. And Vern took one more, and it was mine. He took my program. I gave, actually gave him the cover of my program, and he signed it to me. I had the opportunity before I left the auditorium that night. I saw him in the hallway. Vern didn't know me. And, of course, I was just a kid, 12 years old, you know. And I said, hey, Vern, thanks for signing my program. He smiled. He stopped. He smiled. And he said, thanks for coming to the matches. Did you enjoy the match? I mean, he took that moment. And that was something that really hit me hard yesterday when, when many people were talking about how Vern would always stop and talk to people. Uh, one of Vern's uh, daughters had brought up the fact that when Vern would walk into a, to a grocery store, when they'd be going as a family, they'd stop at the grocery store or something, and somebody would recognize him and the daughter, I believe it was Beth that was talking, uh, Greg's sister Beth, and she said, my dad didn't just shrug him off. He would stop, and he'd spend 15 or 20 minutes talking with a person, huh. and he didn't even know him. But he, she said, that's when I realized that dad was, you know, he, he would take the time. He never didn't have the time. Well, Vern had a tremendous uh, appreciation for the fans. And, you know, back in those days, it was really the the ticket-buying fans that created the revenue. It was not really from television or anything else. And Vern had a tremendous awareness of that. And you're right, Vern always tried to to have time for as as many people as he could. And I think, George, the the story you mentioned a, a moment ago, about how the fans could get to the ring and get autographs, you know, in baseball or football or hockey or basketball, they couldn't do that right before a game started. And I think that was one of the reasons, and to a degree you still see it today, where there was always such a connection, and and you're certainly a 
a, a, a prime example, connections that just were made between the wrestlers and the fans, including, you know, getting access to them, that created lifelong wrestling fans. Now, granted, most didn't become the noted historian you are, but there was always that connection, and I think part of that was because of the accessibility. Well, and, and I think what we when we talk about that charismatic character, I mean, in today's wrestling in the past 25 or so years, you know, we've got bigger-than-life characters like Hulk Hogan and people like that, and let's never discount their appeal and their, their charisma and their, their ability to, to bring fans in. We can't do that because they do it, they do it so well. But with a guy like Vern Gagne, he, he did it with just being a wrestler. He, he, he didn't have a costume. He didn't have a gimmick. And, and he was a character. And, then, and I want to talk about this, too, because this was something that both Greg yesterday at the funeral service and I'm going to point out, I'm going to touch on something that Mean Gene Okerlund said, because Mean Gene was there to deliver a eulogy yesterday. And I'll tell you some, a couple things that Mean Gene said. But the one thing that both Gene and Greg pointed out, that in that era, and I've heard this from so many guys in the business over the decades, in that era, we ran our business on a handshake. And it's not that way anymore. No, and, no. And he I mean, said, uh, and Greg said that when the wrestling business, and this came from Greg, and I want to tell you, God bless Greg for this, because as he was talking about both Vern as a as a public figure and as a wrestler and as a champion and as a guy who he, he you know, Greg obviously was close at hand running the business with his dad in later years, but he said he was also talking about his dad, and I can tell you, Greg broke up so many times and with me saying that guys i don't know if anyone here knows some people will recognize when i say this the service the church service was held at the pax christi community church catholic church in eden prairie and i was up i was amazed at how huge this church was for starters very beautiful building very big building i mean it was incredible and I am here to tell you, because I was there, both my wife and I were there, the church was full for his memorial service yesterday. And then I'm going to point out to you that I bet you a dozen times or more, I looked around the crowd and I was among them, wiping tears away. And Jim Brunzel was right in front of me, and he was teared up most of the time with what was being said. And I watched Paul Ellering, who was there, and Paul Ellering wiped his eyes. Steve Olsonowski, the same thing. And those are just a couple of the wrestlers that I, I would point out to you, that everybody was holding a Kleenex, and that's not an exaggeration. As the stories were being told, and every one of these fans and friends of the family and you know the wrestlers that were there, Obviously, when you go to a funeral, any funeral, we all have our own moments, our own precious memories of an individual, of a family member or a friend. And yesterday it was so apparent that Vern was many things to many people. And it was, it was the most, I told my wife when we were walking out, I said, you know, 
And of course, I was emotional for my own reasons. And I said, you know, I've been to so many funerals over the years. I've never been to one like this. I said, my God, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I just was, I didn't have words. And I want to share with you what Mean Gene, Gene gave a great eulogy, talked a little bit about how Vern was that charismatic figure in the 50s and was there when television started and how he was television, how he created the television empire at the time, how he became the big name all over, and he wrestled in Madison Square Garden and, and in Texas and Oklahoma and Florida and Atlanta and all these big spots before he ever just settled on you know the Midwest. And, and Gene, absolutely, this is when I swear you could have heard a pin drop in the church, literally that saying, you could hear a pin drop. And I will tell you firsthand, guys, there was not a dry eye in the place when Gene said it in only the way Gene can do. We all know his voice. And I couldn't, I could never imitate Mean Gene. But I will tell you what he did at the very end of his eulogy. He said, I think it's only fitting that we do it one more time. Ladies and gentlemen, the heavyweight champion of the world, Vern Ganya. And at that moment, I guarantee you, everybody was teared up. It was the most remarkable thing. It, well, it absolutely me, was. You're, you, you did a pretty good imitation. That wasn't bad. Oh, I, I mean the you know, and I, I'm just sitting here thinking the the impact. I, I I don't know that any individual has in the past, or I I can't imagine how anyone in the future, the way the business has changed, will have the impact on professional wrestling that Vern Gagne did. And I was thinking, you know, as we're you know doing this tribute to to Vern. For wrestling fans that don't know, we'd really be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the great names that Vern trained. That, you know, without Vern, there wouldn't be a Ric Flair, a Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, a a, a Bob Backlund. I mean, he trained so many great champions. that We should point out that Bob Backlund was among the stars there yesterday. Uh, I, I want to also say, guys, you know, Glenn, you've you've heard me on our shows that, you know, me personally as a fan who misses my golden age and the way it used to be, mm-hmm. I have always given credit to the WWE and the McMahons when it's deserved. And I want to point out something about this service. Greg Gagne spoke with me on Saturday before the, this past Saturday, and he told me that he was uh, had received a call from Stephanie McMahon telling him that they're sending their deepest condolences and that if there is anything that Greg needs, uh, that if they can provide it, they will. And I will tell you, this was heartwarming because at the funeral, they provided video footage, which sadly Greg no longer owns because it is WWE material sure. now but they provided material for Greg. They provided photos. And they, the McMahons, along with uh, Triple H and Stephanie, sent a huge uh, spray of flowers 
with a very nice condolence message on it that they had the sympathies for your dad who paved the way. Our, our sympathy to you, Greg, and the entire Ganya family and the wrestling community. Now, say what you will, that's nice. And, I, and then I want to point out another interesting and I think very... I'm not a Jesse Ventura fan. Never have been, and I don't mean from a wrestling standpoint. I don't care for Jesse as a politician, but that's a whole other story. Sure. But Jesse, we know who Jesse is. He's a very charismatic, a very creative, reinventive character, and Jesse is Jesse, and he's always going to be Jesse. There was a beautiful spray of flowers with a message on it, guys, that said to Greg Ganya and the Ganya family, our deepest sympathy, from Terry and myself, you gave me the name, the body. Our sympathies to you on the passing of, and then in quotations, the legend. And signed was, it, Terry and Jesse Ventura. That was very nice of Jesse. And he and on the on the flowers there was a banner that had the word legend on it. Nice touch. I mean, it was. Uh, I looked at it, and I I don't know if Jesse's in town right now, if he's living here or if he's living somewhere else. But he wasn't at the service. But that was nice that he did that. And there were just so many. Oh my gosh, the flower arrangements with people that, you know. It was. It. I, I just wish that I could have had it all on film, because it really was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. And and I will tell you this: before the church service, we're sitting in church. Now I tell you what: people go to church on Sunday or whatever, wherever, whatever time you worship. You, you go there and you you see a mass or a or a service, and you don't start out with a twenty minute uh, video presentation involving uh, memorials from the family and, and wrestling footage and, and story or, you know, celebrities talking. Well, that's what we were treated to and from the family. And it started off with Vern Gagne sitting at a desk. And this was obviously done uh, many years ago already because Vern, you know, has had difficulties over the last eight or 10 years, but it was done with, I'm Vern Gagne and I want to share with you uh, my family and, and my life. And, oh my gosh, people were teared up in this church. And I just, I walked out of there and I just have never been in an environment like that. And then I'm going to turn it back over to Ken here for a minute. Cause now he's hiding under the ring, but I, I want to say that as a fan, I always consider myself a fan of wrestling first because that's the bug that bit me when I was eight years old that turned into this crazy addiction that it has become. But as I'm sitting there yesterday, I realized that even though I would never say Vern Gagne was one of my favorite wrestlers, I loved Vern Gagne on the cards. I loved Vern Gagne's matches. But it struck me that when I was eight years old, I always have told the story how Tiny Mills and Stan Kowalski were the tag team that caught my eye because I liked the heels. But it, yesterday morning, 
I told my wife, I said, you know what? I can remember the very first moment that I became cognizant of Vern Gagne. And Marty O'Neill said on TV, fans tonight, Vern Gagne and Frank Townsend are taking on Mills and Kowalski. The World Tag Team Championship will be on the line. And I remembered that from 1959. And Vern Gagne was the reason because he brought all this here. He brought all the Crushers and the Mad Dogs and the Bockwinkles and all the other hundreds of characters. He brought all them here. So then it dawned on me, Vern's gone. He's the reason that I, I'm, I have this sickness. <laughs> and it, was, it made me cry. I mean, literally. And, and like I said, I wish you could have seen the church. I've never been to a funeral. I've been to so many funerals, as we all have, and people cry and some people are able to hold back the tears for whatever. Some people don't have tears. But it wasn't the case yesterday, guys. This was real. They could have sold Kleenex by truckloads there yesterday because people were, were crying. I mean, it was sad. And uh, let's uh, let, let's kind of keep it going. we got a few more minutes here to go here, uh, George. And uh, I, I want to... Uh Talk about, you know, from, from my personal standpoint and stuff, you know, I, I of course, I came on to pro wrestling uh, in the mid-1980s, early to mid-1980s, and if it wasn't for Vern Gagne, I wouldn't uh, have been able to tune into the, the, the Winnipeg uh, Manitoba station, CKND, and turn on AWA action and see Mr. Mr. Killer Ken Resnick do the interviews, and before that, Gene Okerlund with the interviews, and, and, and seeing all these larger-than-life characters that, that kind of set me onto my path, or as you refer to it, George, as the addiction, the wrestling bug. If it wasn't for Vern Gagne, I wouldn't have had these people come into my life. I wouldn't have known of a Hulk Hogan or a Jesse Ventura or the High Flyers or uh, when uh, Killer Ken, when you were around, when uh, the Bruiser Brodies of the world. You know, sure, it, I didn't know, Glenn. So you're a you're a Canadian. I I lived about twenty. I grew up about twenty uh, miles from the Canadian border. Okay, sure. CKND with Don Brinton was the president. Yep, good uh, looking CKND. When you guys would uh, do the, uh, you you have the tapings, uh, the the All Star Wrestling stuff, but you guys would do all the market uh, specific interviews and stuff. Boy, you guys had me from Jump Street. Uh, I, w- in fact, Winnipeg was the first road trip I made uh, when we flew up there. I, I, Winnipeg always has a. Very special place in my heart. I didn't know you used to watch on CKND. Yeah, yes, I did. And uh, speaking of Winnipeg, uh, it was just a couple of nights ago. I was uh, chatting online with a, a guy who uh, did some promoting up in Winnipeg that George knows, and he did some work with the AWA, Tony Candelo. Oh, sure. Tony was was a little before, uh, or his prime was before I got there. Back then it was uh, Bob Holiday, yeah. but I think he kind of... Uh, Succeeded Tony Candelo, but those are, are some great names. But again, well, in, in Tony, Tony Candelo, guys, he used to come in in the 60s and he would come in on Saturdays and work Ferns TV. And he wrestled the, the cards at that time as Tony Savoldi. And uh, if, you, if you were able to see footage of the wrestling cards back then, there was Tony Candelo. And then, as Glenn pointed out, um, I had the opportunity. Uh, to do television up in Winnipeg for a short time in, in 1986 for uh, several of Tony Condello's uh, West 4 wrestling under the NWA banner that he was doing. And uh, it was a fun experience. Yeah, Winnipeg is a, is a great city. But again, we should talk for fans that don't know the, the, 
the people that that Vern trained and and oh Vern was one of those that then the the stories were legendary and thankfully I never had to experience that. But I mean, his training camps were you had to go through hours and hours of conditioning and exercise and survive just that before you would even start teaching wrestling. And I mean, you know, Ric Flair, Ricky the Dragon, Bob Backlund, Bob, and, and even, you know, he ended up training Brad Rangan, who I think Vern really had a, an affinity for because, like Vern, Brad was two time NCAA champion. But Vern liked, and you mentioned it earlier, George, you had to be schooled in the fundamentals and techniques and become a wrestler before they, he would even think about character development. Well, and one of the things, you know, I tried to make a count here a while back, and I, I had come up with 152 wrestlers that Vern had personally had a hand in training and brought into the business. And over the years, you know, we've taught, you've mentioned some of them, Ken, you know, some of the, the bigger names that fans would recall from the late 70s and 80s, like Steamboat and Flair and, and et cetera. But, you know, the three Anderson brothers, Gene Anderson was the first uh, Anderson that he trained back in 1961. And he brought Black Jack Lanza into the business and Larry Hennig and Baron Von Raschke. And one of the things that Vern, uh, you know, there's, there's wrestlers that Vern trained that didn't even wrestle for the AWA. Guys like Bulldog Bob Brown. You know, he trained him and, and Bulldog would work TV matches back in the 60s as Bill Green. But went out to have a big big career as as Bob Brown, Bulldog Brown. But Sergeant the thing Slaughter. about Vern is he emphasized, as you said, Ken, that, that wrestling background. And if you look yep. at all the guys I just mentioned, they were college graduates. They were college wrestlers. They had a they had a wrestling background and Vern he wanted them to know how to wrestle. And then like I said earlier, then we'll, if you get we need a character for you or a costume or something, yeah, we'll work with that. But you're gonna be a wrestler first. You know, another of the great Sergeant Slaughter was here yep. and trained as Bob Remus before he became Sergeant Slaughter. Yep. Yep. And I mean he, he was Bob Remus and he went on the road just for just a short time and he came back. Some fans may not know this, but he came back under a mask as Super Destroyer Mark II. Yep. He was along yep. with Lord Alfred Hayes. Lord, here a couple of years. Yeah, and, and it's uh, interesting. But Vern, Vern had one of the, you know, back in that business, or back in that era, people talk about Stu Hart and his dungeon up in Calgary. And Stu Hart put out a ton of great wrestlers. Vern Gagne put out, as I said, I counted 152 of them. And then there was Hiro Matsuda and Boris Malenko down in Florida. And you had the Funks, uh, Dory Sr., who, who brought in uh, a bunch of wrestlers from the Texas, West Texas Territory and everything. But Vern was unique because he was one of those few territories that could, you know, put out the wrestlers. And then, you know, that's what we're missing today. And this is why Vern's contribution has to really be uh, emphasized for that. Because today we have no training camps like that. There are no territories for the boys that come into the business to go to. If you don't work for, for WWE or TNA on a smaller scale, you might have some work in some of the small little independents that are running around the country. But you have no place to gain experience. You have no place to get that, that training and no place to work with all of the, the many 
3,000 wrestlers that were uh, around in that era. And you couldn't learn from the Ray Stevens and the Bachwinkles and the Hennigs and the, you know, that's what's missing. And Vern had that contribution where he brought those guys in. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, now, and it it took probably another, you know, old, not old, but a a veteran of the business. I mean, it was, uh, it's been Triple H that has really pushed WWE to establish this NXT down in, uh, I was Tampa, and I think they've moved to Orlando. But Vern was, you know, he had the foresight in understanding that, you know, you had to, uh, you know, in large corporations, you know, they have great intern programs. In a sense, Vern had the business foresight to say, you know, we have to train people to continue our business. Well, and, you know, you look at baseball, Major League Baseball, for example, you know, of of all, you know, you've got 30 teams and you've got all the players on each team, but, you know, each player would tell you how fortunate they are to make the major leagues because for every player that makes it to the major leagues, there are probably 10 or 20 or 30 that don't, that never make it to the major leagues, even though they're a a quality uh, baseball player, a talented baseball player. And in wrestling back in that era, Vern would hold his annual or or every other year camp and, you know, there'd be 10, 12, 15 guys that would line up and they, they're, they're coming in, you know, they think this is going to be a cakewalk, that I'm going to be a wrestler. I'm going to do what the wrestlers do on TV and, you know, I'm going to be the next crusher. And they would come in and within the first couple of days of this training camp. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I, and this is a true story. I mean, there'd be 15 guys that would start and by day number two, you're down to five guys. And then by day number three, you're down to two guys or or three guys. And then each camp would have those two or three guys that would be the ones. And there were a couple of camps where he only put out one wrestler that, that ended up being the lone survivor that could take it. But most of the camps had two or three or four guys that they they were able to make the grade. And Vern would put them through hell. Never told them about how the business works. Sometimes, Ole Anderson told the story one time, Rock Rogowski, that Vern trained Rock Rogowski, Al Rogowski, and, and uh, Ole told the story one time that he was never smartened up to the business until the night of his first match. He was told he was going to lose. He said that's how he found out. Well, that's you know, like I, I said, it was really the, the, the other guys of Lanza, Bachwinkle, and Keenan, uh, mm-hmm. Crusher that, you know, started and and the real problem when I first started because they were kayfaving me no one was really you know giving me tips and helping me learn how to to work with the guys so I fully believe that yeah I'm sure uh during the camp Vern didn't didn't smarten up uh anyone <laughs> well and 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 to and to their credit the idea was is that you were going to prove yourself yep. you know Vern one of the statements that was made yesterday by Greg, he said that when Vern put the guys, and let's not forget that Greg himself went through this camp, but let me tell you what Greg said. He said Vern would put us through hell in those camps, and he said Vern wanted you to prove to him to prove to yourself. Now think about that statement a second. It, it's, it's right there. Vern wanted you to prove to him, to prove to yourself, 
that you were ready for this business. Well, I think that's very true, and, I, and I'm sure in, in Vern's mind, and, and I think you hit it on the, on the head, that Vern said, if I'm going to put all this time and, and effort into doing this, you need to show me that you're worth my time. Right. And then if I would reflect back on that Ole Anderson statement, and he made this statement, I think if for those folks that have his book, Ole Anderson's book, um, it's available online, but... Ole states in his book that on his first match, that's when he was, that's when he realized that wrestling was a work. And he says, I never found out till my first match. I was told that night that I was going to lose. And I said, what do you mean I'm going to lose? And that's when he realized, you know what? We're doing a business here. And for anybody, and Ole Anderson was one of Vern's greatest students because he became one of the famous wrecking crew with Gene and Lars Anderson. Later on with Arn Anderson, he was part of the Four Horsemen. Ole Anderson was a great promoter, a great booker. And despite the character of Ole, you know, Ole's, we've all talked about his temperaments and the way he ran the business. But Ole Anderson, I seen him wrestle as Rock Rogowski as a rookie. I saw him wrestle as Ole Anderson as a veteran. And I got news for you guys. He earned his oats, he earned he knew his trade, he was taught well by Vern, and he made he made Ole Ole a character, but he was great. So kudos to Ole. Oh, yeah, I, I mean anybody that survived Vern's camp, both from by proving themselves to Vern and just having the intestinal fortitude and the makeup to survive that camp. I, I would bet of your hundred and some list, George, predominantly more of them were successful than not. Oh, believe me, the list, I mean, we hit on the Andersons and Rashke and Lanza and, and Hennig and, and uh, uh, Bob Bruggers, the Steamboats, Paul Ellering, Olsenowski, and oh my gosh, I you know I don't have the list with me right now, but there's so many. Um, he, you well, know, Vern you know, Gagne. How many people know this, Ken and Glenn? Vern Gagne, along with Joe Pazendak, who was an old veteran, tough son of a gun. Joe Pazendak was a real wrestler. He was a heel, but he was a a, a, a real wrestler. Vern Gagne and Joe Pazendak were instrumental in training. Are you ready for this? Dick the Bruiser and brought oh, Dick wow. Affleth into the business. The Bruiser made his debut in Minneapolis as Dick Affleth. And Vern Gagne, in 1955, in the early 50s, there was responsible for some of the Bruiser's first training. Well, Dick Affleth was his real name. A lot of people don't realize he played linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. Yes, he did. Yes. And, you know, that's the other thing. As we pointed out earlier, with wrestling being different today, and Vern, Vern emphasized the athlete first. All the, the college background, the amateur wrestling background, the high school background, the college wrestling background, and then how many football players, you know, that went from, from college to football, and football transcended into the wrestling business. Because in those days, you didn't make the money you make in football today. Sure. And the guys could make far more money working the, the pro circuit of wrestling, working four, five, six nights a week than trying to make a living in football. And if you look at the list of wrestlers 
that Vern Gagne brought into wrestling that had a football background. The list is long. Oh, absolutely. I mean, his his contribution will will never ever be equaled again in in what you know he did. And really, to to kind of put it in perspective, if you think about it today, you have a far far greater chance if you're an athlete of making a living in pro football or pro baseball, pro hockey, than you do in pro wrestling, just the sheer numbers. Right. You've got a much better chance of, uh, of, well, uh, every NFL team, I think, now with the practice squad have about 60 players. So 32 teams, that's, you know, over 1,900 NFL players that are making a pretty good living in the NFL. And, you know, in this country, other than WWF, you know, TNA is second, you know, ROH is there. I mean, you maybe have a couple hundred that are really, you know, making a living in wrestling. Well, one of the things that's always interesting is when you look back at the 30 to 35 territories that were running regular nightly shows 365 days a year all around the country back in the 50s and 60s, you know, what people don't realize, guys, is that at any given time, there were close to 3,000 wrestlers sure. that were running around the country doing their, doing their thing. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that all 3,000 of those guys were making the top money, but I'm saying that there were 3,000 guys that had uh, the ability to make money and to go to different territories. Many made money in different territories, and some territories they didn't. But there, it was a very competitive business back then. You know, we should point out that Nick Bockwinkle was what we would have called a journeyman wrestler for about 15 years, 15 years, guys, before he came to the AWA in 1970, December of 70. That's news, man. He had wrestled since 1954, and though he had had some, some main event programs in some territories, Bockwinkle was a was a mid-card guy and, and that sort of thing in all the places he went until he went to Atlanta in 1969. And he first that was when he first became a heel. And then Vern brought him in here in December of 70, and the rest is history. But Nick was in the business for 15 years before he hit the stride that he did in the AWA. And what a, what a wonderful human being. Nick. And let's point something out while we're talking about Nick. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle told me this on more than one occasion. You know, we talk about some wrestlers that didn't like their position on the card or they didn't like what they felt the treatment was from Vern on the card or the wrestling or whatever it was. And then you had just as many wrestlers who worked for Vern anytime they got a chance and they loved working for the AWA. Bockwinkle told me one time, and I think this sums it up, and if more people could adhere to this in any line of work they're in, They may be happier people. Here's what Nick told me, guys. He said, working for Vern was easy. All I had to do was know what Vern wanted me to do. (laughs) (laughs) Now think about that. Yep. And Nick Nick was in Vern's, if you want to say Nick was in his inner circle, he was because Nick was the guy that Vern put his title on. And he did that because he trusted Nick. Yep. 
And he, you know, Nick, that, that was the thing about the wrestling business in those days. It was run by a handshake, but you always had guys that would, for whatever reason, have a beef and no show a card or try to do something that they weren't supposed to do because they were ticked off or they'd try to test the champ. Nick was a guy that he was a fundamental wrestler. He had a, Nick Bockwinkle was trained by Lou Thez and Wilbur Snyder and his own dad, Warren Bockwinkle. I got news for you right there. Those are three trainers that Nick knew how to wrestle. Oh, absolutely. And <laughs> and Wilbur Snyder was a close friend of Vern Gagne, as was Lou and Warren Bockwinkle. So Vern knew that Nicky Bockwinkle, he could be trusted. I can put the title on him. Nick's going to be loyal to me. And like Nick said, you you, you know you get along with Vern when you know what Vern wants, when you do what Vern wants you to do. And, 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 and I think it. that Nick was lucky enough, and that was a problem for a lot of the rest of us. Nick kind of was able to figure out what Vern wanted him to do. If the rest of us could have figured that out, it would have been a lot better. Well, there you go. But you know what? <laughs> I'll tell you this. Nick also said to me one time, you know, everybody, I, I think some of the classic matches, and I know we're going on a different uh, tangent here with Nick for a moment, but I always remember when Nick told me, you know, some of the greatest matches I saw, and I saw many of them against Billy Robinson. Billy was tough to work with. A lot yeah. of the guys didn't like working with Billy. Billy, and Billy was could be and, tough. And he liked be to tough. work on the mat. Right. But he could be tough to work with because if Billy didn't care for you, he was going to play with you. He was yeah, going to hurt you a, little bit. you a little bit. And Nick said to me one time, he said, when I had to wrestle Nick or a wrestle Billy on a card, he said, I go into the locker room and I say, well, Billy, what are we going to do tonight? What do you want to do? And he says, let Billy run the match. We're fine. We, he said, we always had fun together. Yep. That's it. It's yep. as simple as that. So there, there's a lot of wisdom that comes out of this. And, you know, look at Maurice Fashan, Mad Dog. Uh, Vern had a great, and I'm going to tell you a Dick Byer story regarding Vern Gagne, too, here, guys. I thought this was very, very special. Uh, but let me tell you the Mad Dog thing first. Uh, Vern obviously knew Mad Dog from the 48 Olympics. Mad Dog represented Canada. And as a, a wrestler, as a pro wrestler in the 50s, Vern uh, realized Maurice's amateur background. He brought him in in the AWA in 19, late 63, early 64. And that's really, really where the Mad Dog character took off, even though it was uh, uh, Don Owen in Portland, Portland that had given him the Mad Dog name. But Vern was the one that took Mad Dog and trusted him with his title for three years when Mad Dog was AWA champ. And the dog was always a good draw against Vern. They had a natural made program good versus evil as best it was in those days but let me tell you the dick buyer story uh the day after or the day after i heard that Vern had passed away i called dick buyer dick buyer for our fans listening that don't know was dr x here in the awa and he was the destroyer in other territories in japan japan and canada etc but uh I called Dick Byer and I said, Hey Dick, um, 
I don't know if you'd heard or not, but I wanted to let you know that Vern Gagne passed away last night. And he said, no, I, my God, I didn't hear that. And he said, thanks for, for letting me know. And, and then he went on, and Dick started telling me a story. And Dick is great with the stories. But I will tell you this, Dick is pretty factual with his stories. I appreciate that with him. But he says, I always got along really good with Vern. He said, you know, I met Vern for the first time in 1952. And he said, Vern was in Ohio. And you got to remember, Dick Beyer represented Syracuse University and had a great amateur wrestling and swimming background, football background. And Dick says, Vern Gagne came in to the locker room and he introduced himself to me. He said, I didn't, I'd heard the name, but I didn't know him. And he introduced himself to me. He said, and he said, Vern told me, I hope we get to do business together sometime. And then Dick says, we had talked a couple of times and our, my career went a different way with being the destroyer. And he said, then it was in 1966 when we had first started talking about coming in. And in 67, he said, that's when we uh, got together and we created the Dr. X character. And he said, Vern took care of me for three years and we, he made a deal with me. Now this is Dick talking guys. He says, Vern made a deal with me that, he wanted me to unmask when my run was done. And I told him I didn't want the destroyer to unmask. And Dick said, or Vern said, we will give you a different character. And that's the Dr. X character. And he said he was true to his word. And when I went to Vern and told him I was done for a while with the Dr. X character and wanted to move on, Vern says, what we're going to do is we'll work a program and we'll, we'll uh, get the mask off of you and, you move on and you come back whenever you want. And the destroyer, or Dr. X, came back a year after he had left and was a good guy here as a, yep. as a baby face. But he says, I always enjoyed working with Vern. And then he said, please be sure and give my sympathies to uh, Greg. And he wanted me to get back with him with uh, an address and a phone number, which I did for Greg and the family. And, and uh, But Dick had just great things to say about him. Well, his... His contribution will, will to pro wrestling will will never be matched. That's for certain. Well, guys, it looks like uh, the clock on the wall says we've uh, reached a near ninety minute Broadway on our uh, special look back here at Vern Gagne. Yeah, but the time flies when the memories uh, get get flowing, I guess. And and uh, hey, no better time to talk about Vern Gagne and, and such a great tribute. You know, the only thing I want to say real quick, Glenn, you and I are both, you know, very privileged to, to be amongst George's friends. But earlier when he said he only likes the heels, is that a shot at you and me? I don't I don't know where. Is George, I mean, he has been known to be the authority, and he's done some in-ring stuff where he had a little chicanery uh, in the yeah, past. Yeah, when he said he, he likes the heels, I guess that's what he considers us. I don't know. <laughs> I, I want you guys to know that uh, I enjoy, I, you know, people ask me who's my favorite wrestler or wrestlers. And, yeah, I have a list of about five or six guys that are really up on top just for me personally for my own reasons. But I've got a lot of uh, babyface wrestlers over the years that absolutely, uh, Moose Evans, I can throw that name out, and probably neither of you have ever heard of Moose Evans. But he was a baby face, and man, I, I was all gaga over him when I was 12, 13 years old. He was, he was the guy. And Doug Gilbert, and uh, there, there's a lot of them. I, I, I love baby faces, too. I love wrestling. 
And uh, but yeah, I was a heel fan, you know. <laughs> but yeah, you guys are heels. Don't get. I've been around you both. I know you're heels. Oh, hey now, I guess we're cool heels, right, Mister? Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I, Glenn, I knew he was going to get that out sooner or later, so I thought we must as well get it over with. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got it at the end of the thing. It's kind of a good kicker to end a very fun, lively conversation. And guys, I, I, I truly thank you for both taking time out of your schedule to uh, be a part of this edition of Wrestling Memories Online. And boy, we could have got, gone on even further, but you know what? There's always a to-be-continued element. I am a to-be-continued person, and I think that we're going to probably uh, revisit some more wrestling memories, uh, both uh, with George and, of course, with Killer Ken Resnick. Don't you think, Mr. Shire? Glenn, I just want to say one more thing. I had I, I got to share with you a compliment that I got the other day from Greg Gagne. Okay. And, and this is this really meant a lot to me. When you talk about how you're, you know, Ken, when you were talking earlier about how you you for whatever reason you realize you're accepted, but maybe you were never really told. Exactly. I've known Greg for three decades and Greg always teases me because I, I correct him on history of wrestling and things he says, and I change it and he teases me, you know, yeah, okay. You know, you know, all the answers. Well, the other day, Saturday morning, he asked me, he says, um, uh, did you talk to that lady from the New York times about Vern the other day? And Greg had talked to this reporter. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I did, Greg. And I said twice she gave me a call to get some things and information on Vern. And Greg said, well, I just wanted to thank you for that because that way I know we'll get it right. Well, I, I took, while we're doing and that, that... I'm, I'm serious, saying, that meant a lot to me. Well, Glenn, I can share this with you. I imagine you probably have. One of the best honors I've had in wrestling is yet to come, which I absolutely... I'm going to avail myself of in the next few weeks, but I've been invited. I get to see George's wrestling. Oh, you are you are a blessed man. That is a thing of beauty. My comp- that, my compliments you, to George. That's when you know you you've kind of made it when you get a personal invitation from George. And it's an honor, man. Yep. And George, I will be calling and saying, "How about this day?" You know, I, w- I want our listeners to know something right now. Mr. Resnick's giving you a little bit of trash talk here because it wasn't just recently that he's been invited. Uh, Mr. Resnick has had several invitations, and he's just not made the time. But you guys, both of you, anytime, anytime you want to come, I will do my best to avail my schedule because I love talking wrestling. You've never guessed that. And I love sharing it with people that have the same passion and it's great. And so, yes, Ken, let's do lunch. Let's get you over here. And make sure you just make you don't have just an hour, okay? Because you're going well, to gonna gonna plan I, the I afternoon or a good day, okay, my friend? And, and, and it's on the record, at least from a previous conversation. At least now I'm I'm, I'm more open because I know I can bring you something that we've talked about, so I don't have to come empty-handed. So well, you never had to come empty-handed, but yes, we'll we'll leave it at that. You did tell me you had a special surprise, and I. You told me what it was, and I'm looking forward to it. So, But please, we're going to get together. And, uh, Glenn, when you get your butt down here to the cities, instead of just going to concerts, you and I got to get together again, too. I think so. I, I, I've i been called Mr. Rock and Roll because every time I get down there, it seems like uh, I, I, I'm booked. Like I, gotta, I should have my own t- world tour T-shirts of some of the things I get going to. Well, well there you go. 
George, Ken, I want to thank you, my friend, for coming on with us and sharing oh, stories and it, it, talking. Anytime, and, it's, uh, a, it's a pleasure. And just so you know, if Glenn ever makes a trip down, you have to include me in that lunch. Well, oh. you got it, man. You got it. Sounds uh, like a plan. We'll we'll work it out. But uh, thanks, Ken. Uh, Glenn, uh, uh, always a pleasure. Anytime, and George, we'll talk soon. All right, you guys, take care. Thank you for wrestling Thank memories. You. I'm Glenn Brogett. So long, everybody.